Get your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. Gospel of Luke in chapter 13, as we continue our study through this incredible gospel. Uh, we looked at uh, verses 1 through 9 last week, and so let's look at 10 through 21 this morning. Luke and 13, 10 through 21. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Luke 13. If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Let's read this together. Luke 13, starting at verse 10. Holy Spirit says, Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air may nest in its branches. And he again, he said, so what shall I compare the kingdom of God? What is it? it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Amen. That's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Perspective is everything. You've heard this phrase before, yes? This is true in many areas of life that I think many of us can attest to. Perspective is everything. This is also true in a specific kind of art called anamorphosis. This type of art became popular among Renaissance artists, and it's used in different ways, even still today. Imagine, if you will, that you are walking through an art gallery. You guys like going to art galleries? The big art gallery downtown Cordial, right? You're walking through an art gallery, and you come upon this painting, and we're going to put it on screen, this first painting here. This painting was done by Hans Holbein the Younger, and it was done in 1533. And it's called Ambassadors, okay? Say you're going through the art gallery, you come upon this painting. So you walk up to this painting, and it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, two men, one on uh, an ambassador and one a bishop, who is also an ambassador, are standing in a room, and they're separated by a table on which they both rest their arms. There are several other knickknacks, like a globe and a book on arithmetic and a hymnal and a lute. You may note that the green green that colors the background or the dagger that the man on the left holds in his hands or maybe the pattern of the carpet or the other astronomical trinkets. Staring straight on at the painting, you may think the painting is rather pleasant. Maybe you're curious at why some of those items are on the table, right? Or, or if the rug's pattern has any kind of significance. But you move on and you go to look at some other piece of art. But now as you move to your right, you look back at the picture and something else becomes clear, which we're going to put on the screen. 
a skull. This is what makes the painting anamorphic. When you looked at the painting head-on, go back to the first picture. When you looked at it head-on, what you see is a couple fellas next to a table and maybe what seems like a gray smear at the bottom. You see that gray smear at the bottom? But when you change your perspective, the next picture, and you change the angle that you look at the painting from, if you step to the right of the painting, it reveals something that may have seemed hidden. So much so that had you not changed your perspective, you wouldn't have seen what was truly there. The artist reminds us in this painting that what we see is not all that there is. He reminds us that oftentimes that we need is a change in perspective because we may be missing out on what's there but seemingly hidden and that there is more going on than meets the eye. In the text we're considering this morning, Jesus is showing us that perspective is everything that there is more going on than meets the eye, that not everything is what it seems, that the kingdom of God is not what one would expect. From one angle, it looks one way, but with the right perspective, it is more glorious kingdom, the the most glorious kingdom the world has ever seen, and even might catch you by surprise. So after Jesus finishes the discourse that began in 12.1, we see him someplace that we've seen him many times, right? The synagogue. He, he was there, as was his custom, Luke notes, in a different place. But this will be the last time that Luke tells us of a scene in which Jesus is in a synagogue. Not only do we find him in the synagogue, but you recall, we find him still on his way to the cross. It's been a while, but in chapter 9, it set us towards the cross. And now his run-in with the religious leaders in this text this morning is simply another step towards their resolve to have Jesus killed. But now the placement of this scene is purposeful. After warning, if you just look up at the text that just came before it, after warning of the nearness of the end and the signs of the time and the need to repent, Jesus heals a woman and stresses the need to make a decision. A decision not only for these religious leaders and this original audience, but for you and me too. Jesus shows us once again the surprising nature of the kingdom. He shows us that unless we look at it from the right perspective, from his perspective. We may miss what it it is, what it is, what it's for, and what it's about. Now, in this text, we see at least six things. Yes, I said six things about the kingdom, okay? That means the sermon's going three times as long, okay? I hope you brought your lunch. This isn't all there is to know about the kingdom, okay? I'm just kidding, all right? I promise it'll be about the same long time, all right? But in just a few verses, we see at least six important attributes of the kingdom. We're going to kind of have to fly through them, okay? So first, number one. The kingdom comes from the outside. That's number one. The kingdom comes from the outside. As mentioned, Jesus is teaching on a Sabbath in a synagogue when he sees a particular woman in attendance. Now Luke tells us of both her spiritual and physical condition. She had a disabling spirit for 18 years, which caused her to be bent over. Literally, the text says that she was bent double. She could not stand up straight. Jesus sees her. He calls to her. He says, woman, you are loosed from your disability. And then he goes and he touches her and she is healed immediately, okay? Now, we'll get into more details of her healing later, but we first must note that the initiative of this healing is completely and utterly on Jesus, isn't it? In other healings, you might think about other healings, we've seen people come to Jesus and ask him to heal them or perhaps heal somebody they love or a servant, right? We see people who have demons, make their presence known, right? When they cry out upon seeing Jesus and ask him to leave them alone. 
In other places, we see Jesus say something like, your faith has made you well, because they had shown some step of faith or belief in Jesus' power to perform some sort of miracle. But what do we see here? We see a woman come into the synagogue, and she's simply there, right? She's simply just there. She doesn't ask anything of Jesus. We're not told a single thing about her faith. We don't know if she went to the synagogue because she knew Jesus would be there or if she went every week. And we don't even know if she knows who Jesus is at all. She's merely a woman who happens to be at the synagogue and likely just wants to hear some teaching like she always does on a Saturday and go home. And after being doubled over for 18 years, she is likely just as you might be resigned to her fate. It is Jesus who sees her. You notice Luke does this, right? It's Jesus who sees her. It's Jesus who summons her. It's Jesus who laid hands on her. It's Jesus who said to her, you have been loosed. This might seem a a small thing, just another detail in a story, but it illustrates a fundamental truth about the kingdom and about the gospel. Jesus seeing her and initiating her healing is what he does with all people if they are to be in the kingdom of Christ. Without Jesus seeing, going, initiating, there's simply no entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, there is no salvation. Jesus seeing her may just seem like a plain detail of Luke's storytelling, but it's crucial to knowing truths about Jesus' mission and our own inclusion into the kingdom. The fact that Jesus came into the world is based on the fact that he saw sinful humans in their sad condition as he saw this woman in the synagogue in hers. He took notice of her, and he took notice of you too. We didn't take notice of him. We didn't go searching for him. We didn't didn't wake up one day and decide to conduct a search for God. There's no sense in which we went to God and asked him to save us by our own initiative. He comes to us and shows us our need to be saved and offers to be the one who does the saving. Otherwise, some credit for salvation be given to us, and this can't be the case. Well, you know, we often hear of some who went searching for God, or you know, old boy, he found God. Well, the Bible tells us that our sinful condition means we can't even know that we need rescue apart from God's initiative. Without his initiative, we think we're doing pretty okay, thank you very much. Without his initiative, we don't even really think our sin is much of a big deal at all. So why would we search for him? C.S. Lewis said on this idea of man's search for God that we might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. Or remember when Christian had the burden on his back in Pilgrim's Progress and somebody asked him, how do you even know that you have that burden on your back? And he holds up a Bible and he says, I found it in this book. Otherwise, he would not know. That is us. Unless we are shown from the outside of ourselves, then we'd be lost forever. Do you guys realize this? The gospel tells us that pre-existent creator took the initiative, the divine initiative, to seek and save that which was lost, namely you and me. This is true, which it is. What room is there for boasting? What can this woman in this synagogue boast about in this healing from the Lord? Jesus did it all. Doesn't he do it all for you too? You know, the Bible frequently talks of us as sheep, doesn't it? When a sheep wanders off, 
Who's to blame? Tell me. It's the sheep, right? Why do you wander off? Because when sheep lead themselves, all they do is get in trouble. Isn't that true? They flip over and they get eaten by wolves. They walk off cliffs. They drink dirty water. But then the shepherd goes and looks for the sheep and he finds him and he brings him back into the fold. Can the sheep go up to the other sheep and say, did you see that? I came back to the fold on my own. Aren't I great? Well, no, because all he contributed to his finding was his lostness. All merit is due to the shepherd, none for the sheep. Are we not all like sheep who wander away? Have we not all, like sheep, gone our own way? Yet the shepherd comes and he gets us, he puts us on his shoulders. Would we follow him and be led by him to streams of living water? Now that is up to us, isn't it? Why is this important? Because it reminds us both of our fallen condition and the great love of Christ. We're so sinful in ourselves that we had merited only lostness and alienation from our Creator, and yet we are so loved by Him that He would come and seek us and purchase us and bring us close. Unless you get this, you won't be able to properly worship. You realize this? Because you won't be overwhelmed by the beauty and love of Christ. You won't be properly grateful because you'll continue under the premise that you deserve some credit for your rescue. The least grateful people are always those who are wrapped up in what they've done or earned or merited or think they deserve. Jesus shows us that the kingdom is not like this. And this is a crucial perspective to have. We shed all pretense of earning or deserving, and then you can receive the kingdom with lifelong gratitude. Must move on. Point number two. The kingdom is for those whose bonds need loosed. The kingdom is for those whose bonds need loosed. Now, I know loosed isn't a word that you probably use very often, if ever, is it? But that's literally the word that ESV translates as freed in verse 12. And I think it gets to the meaning better than freed, loosed. When we think of freed, we might just think that a woman is now free from her disability that kept her doubled over, right? And in a sense, this is true. But what is happening here is not just physical healing, but spiritual loosing of bonds as well. In fact, Luke tells us that the reason the woman is disabled is because why? Of either demonic possession or that least demonic influence. Now, this does not mean in any way that all physical ailments are the result of demonic activity. Okay, that's not what it's saying. And there isn't even a mention here that the, this woman sinned and this was the result. Demonic influence happens in a fallen world. And for this woman in particular, her ailment was brought on by the demonic. But the point is, Jesus freed her from the most important bond of all. The ones that kept her enslaved in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has done nothing less than transfer this woman from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. The stress here is that what Jesus came to do was loose the bonds of people. That the battle that is raging that Jesus came to fight and win is against hell and Satan. In fact, consider what Jesus says when the synagogue leader becomes indignant at Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. What does it say in verse 16? Jesus says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom what? Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath. 
Jesus says specifically that this woman has been bound by Satan and he has come to lose her bond. She doesn't just need physical healing. She needs spiritual renewal as well. In fact, she needs spiritual renewal more than the physical, doesn't she? In other words, her biggest problem is not that she's been double over for 18 years. Her biggest problem is that she's been bound by Satan for her whole life. Which bond is more important to loose, do you think? Think of it another way. Let's use a biblical example. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, was God only interested in freeing them from their physical chains? Did he merely want to move them from slavery to Pharaoh to self-propelled freedom? No, God freed them physically, but then sought to free them spiritually, didn't he? He was moving them from being slaves to Pharaoh to slaves to Yahweh, and in this, true freedom was found. See, the freedom we need the most is the same. As we talked about on Easter, the things we think we need the most are rarely what we actually need. And the most pressing thing on your mind right now that you brought into this building today is not, in fact, the most important thing you need if you are unrepentant and remain unreconciled to your God. And Neil Postman, writing in the 1980s, he compared the scenarios of Huxley's Brave New World. you remember Huxley's Brave New World? and George Orwell's 1984. He was comparing these two books. Now, people think that these books have the same basic message. But Postman said they expose two different forms of bondage. He said, where Orwell imagined a future in which freedom is destroyed by external forces like the government or some other outward force that oppresses, Huxley imagined freedom being destroyed from within, like egoism, hedonism, innate desire and leisure. To put it another way, the chains that Huxley imagined might be invisible, but they were chains nonetheless. And perhaps those chains are even more dangerous, is what Postman said. We can think that something is enslaving us, that something external to us is holding us back. Isn't that always how it is? It's always somebody else or something else that is holding me back, whether it be physical ailments like this woman or by other people or some situation that we feel like is keeping us from something better. But Jesus is showing us that the bonds we need loose the most are from Satan and sin. And this is what Jesus comes to do. As he says in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, what? You will be free Indeed. He just reminds us here that the biggest enemies are sin, Satan, and death, and that he has come to do what? Vanquish them all. And that only in him can we find freedom from them. He changes our perspective, do you see, to see what we need the most, to see that he came to loose our bonds. But until we recognize that we're in bondage, that's the first step. Until we recognize we're in bondage, we'll remain enslaved. Once we see and admit that we are both enslaved and that we can't loose our own bonds, we will remain in chains. We're religious leaders. What do they see? They see a Sabbath violation. Jesus sees an opportunity to show what the Sabbath is really about, which is rest from the biggest burden of all. Where the religious leaders see a woman who can wait to be healed, Jesus is an image bearer in need of immediate help and release, and that's exactly what he gives. That brings us to our third point. Point three. We are shown that the kingdom is for the invisible, weak, and unseen. The kingdom is for the weak, 
Invis invisible, weak, and unseen. Now, you and I, we're so used to Jesus doing things like this. <laughs> now, we miss the scandal and perhaps the compassion that he exhibits. Culturally, this woman is at several disadvantages. You realize this? And Jesus breaks all kinds of cultural bar barriers to approach her. For one, men did not typically speak to women in public. Second, women were rarely, if ever, approached by rabbis because rabbis, as a rule, did not speak to women. And third, her physical disability would make her societally invisible. Now, those with physical infirmities were disregarded, ignored, looked over, and largely forgotten about during this time. In other words, no one is paying attention to this woman. No one. She has several disadvantages going for her that make her an outcast. She is at literally the bottom of the community ladder. But who sees her? I'll tell you who doesn't see her. The ruler of the synagogue. Does he? When Jesus sees her and calls her and touches her and heals her, the ruler of the synagogue is what? Luke says, indignant. He doesn't say anything to Jesus, though, does he? Instead, he addresses everyone else but Jesus. Every pastor knows this guy, right? He tries to make a public spectacle to show his piety and his concerns. He shows that he cares more about animals than he does about people. It's something we'll get to in a moment, but the point is this. He does not see the woman, does he? He only sees a perceived Sabbath violation. He didn't rejoice that she's healed. Instead, he's upset that she was healed on the Sabbath. But like in many other cases, Jesus shows that he sees people who no one else has time for. Remember blind Bartimaeus that we talked about a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday? He cries out to Jesus. And what, is, what do the disciples do? They tell him, be quiet. Don't bother the teacher. Why? Because he's a blind beggar. In other words, he is someone at the bottom of societal rung. What does he have to offer anyway? What does Jesus do? He calls him, he beckons him to come. The leper, do you remember the leper? Stands far off. No one would even let him come in their house. They didn't even want to stand downwind from this man. What does Jesus do? He goes to him. He speaks to him. He closes the distance between them, and he touches him. The people no one has time for, Jesus has all the time in the world for. The people society ignored, Ignores, Jesus seeks. The ones who are looked down upon, Jesus holds up. The ones who are invisible, Jesus sees. The one society deems as unimportant, unimpressive, and unworthy, Jesus calls the very first in the kingdom of God. See, we need to hear this. We need to hear that this is what the kingdom is because we are conditioned societally to esteem the esteemable and prize the strong and the competent and the important. It's our default mode. Even if you hear this and we reassure ourselves, I'm not like that, you're like that. We see people for what they bring to the table, what they can contribute to us, how they can benefit us, and that determines their value. You know that's true. That's our default mode. That's why we need a new perspective. We need reprogrammed. We need a new perspective. We need to see people from a different angle. I mean, really. Can we be honest? Is our society that much different than the one Jesus was walking in 2,000 years ago? Is it really? Are people people? Are our religious institutions any less drawn to important and powerful and those who have something to offer? Truly, how much 
is the way that we see people colored by the ethics of this world. More than we care to admit, I bet. You know, we wouldn't say it out loud. But how often have the voices that carry the most weight in church business meetings been those who have the most money or the most influence in the community? How often has the church been drawn to political and economic power? Why are we drawn to the conversion testimonies of celebrities and athletes rather than parolees and janitors? Mez McConnell and Mike McKinley wrote this excellent book called Church in Hard Places. And they open chapter 11 like this. Listen to what they say. It says, imagine, and I want you to put yourself in these shoes, okay? Imagine that a young man walks into your church one day, asked to speak to the pastor. He's been in trouble with the law since he was a child, just finished a prison sentence for robbery and serious assault. He looks agitated, goes outside the building for a smoke while you try to find the pastor. Smells like he hasn't washed in a while. His clothes look cheap and shabby. Turns out this young man recently made a profession of faith in Christ, and though he's never read a Bible in his life, he wants to come to your church to find out more about Jesus. He's currently living in a homeless shelter in town. He admits to drug use, but he claims that he's trying to quit. He's quite aggressive and clearly doesn't like being asked a lot of questions. What would you think, what would you be thinking as this man walked away? Would you secretly hope that he wouldn't come back? Would you wonder who will manage him if he returns on Sunday? Would you think about how to help him get out of the shelter and off of drugs? Would you think disciple or disaster? Now, they don't say this, but let me, I'm going to add, let's change the picture, okay? What if instead a young man who had trouble with drugs and been in and out of prison in his life, well-respected businessman, expensive suit, drives a nice car, lives in a nice neighborhood, wants to talk to one of the pastors? What are you thinking when he leaves? Are you thinking differently? Uh, are you hoping he'll come back? Is he more of a prime candidate for membership than the other guy? Are you nervous about him coming back? Are you hoping that he will? Let's just be honest with ourselves. But now this is why we need a different perspective. Jesus says they're both in need of the gospel just the same. But then he radically would tell us that the poor drug addict is closer to apprehending the gospel than the wealthy businessman because the poor addict is in a place of need more than someone who feels they have no needs. Is that radical or not? And Jesus sees someone like a drug addict who no one wants, and he wants him, doesn't he? Just as he sees this woman that no one else seems to see. The question is, do we know both that Jesus sees us and cares for us when we feel hopeless and hopeless and afraid and overlooked? And do we see people the way that Jesus sees them? Do we see people that society overlooks? Do we pass over those society passes over? Do we look down on those who society looks down on? Do we evaluate people based on externals? Do we evaluate people based on what we think they can offer us? Or based on how Jesus sees them and values them? You know, it can't be both. We know that. Maybe we need a change of perspective. The religious leader needed one, didn't he? Not only did he not see this poor woman, but he cared more about his religious rules than he did about her. This brings us to our fourth point, point number four. The kingdom is more than religious rules. 
The kingdom is more than religious rules. Synagogue leaders, indignant is what we're told. Why? Because he thinks that Jesus is breaking a Sabbath rule with his healing of this woman. The man turns to the crowd and he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. In his view, healing is a labor. See, in rabbinic rules, they forbade 39 forms of labor on the Sabbath while they tolerated others. Now, you need to understand this is added to the law. This isn't the law. These are added rules that they made up over time. So they forbade healing, but guess what they allowed? They allowed you to untie your animal and lead it to water. That wasn't work, according to them, but healing was. So Jesus says, they're hypocrites. You don't mind leading your animal to drink so that it might get sustenance, but you have a problem with this image bearer of God being healed on the Sabbath. Their priorities were all out of whack. They need a change of perspective. They've reversed the created order. How can an animal be treated with more concern on a sacred day than the person, than a person? Now notice this. Look again at verse 15. Luke editorializes. Luke calls Jesus what? He says, the Lord answered. The Lord answered. Why is that significant? Because he's reminding us of chapter 6, when Jesus had a similar run-in with the religious leaders on the Sabbath, and Jesus says there, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke is reminding us that Jesus, to put bluntly, can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath because he created it. (laughs) He's the Lord of it. He literally made the rules of the Sabbath. Luke is showing us the irony of some guy telling the Lord of the Sabbath what he should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Now this man sort of grandstands, talks to the crowd instead of Jesus, but Jesus says directly to him, doesn't he? He says, you are a hypocrite. You loose your donkey on the Sabbath so they can drink water. And you're saying, I shouldn't loose the bonds of this human being on the Sabbath. You care more about animals than you do about people, more about your rules than about this woman. You are not only a hypocrite, you don't know what the Sabbath is about. What's the Sabbath about? It's about rest. This guy, he thinks Jesus can wait to heal this woman some other day. Just wait tomorrow. What's one more day, right? Well, you know what? That sounds like someone who hasn't been doubled over for 18 years, doesn't it? This woman is living under this burden, and no one seems to care. Every day is hard for her. This guy thinks, what's one more day? Because he's more concerned with man-made rules than this poor woman. I I bet a day makes a big difference to her, don't you? This reminds us that. We may also need to change a perspective on our religious rules and rituals. Do we care more about our rules and rituals and the way we've always done it than we do people? Even when we think our systems that we grew up with or got comfortable with or prefer are for people, we can be so singularly focused on them that we miss out on other ways to serve, grow, and love. Do we have traditions that we made up that we're more devoted to than we are people? Do we have a way of doing things that we've gripped with a death grip and won't let go of because it's the way we've always done it? Are we more devoted to systems and programs of the past than we are people in the present? Do we have religious traditions that we can't find anywhere in the Bible that we insist others follow and are more concerned with them than the poor and the weak and the marginalized? In other words, what the Bible actually says. 
I was recently listening to Herschel York. He's a professor up at uh, Southern Seminary. He's also a pastor there in Kentucky. He talked about a time in a former church he was in. They started to reach dozens and dozens of inner city kids who had never gone to church. These kids never gone to church. He said about 50 of them, okay? And their parents were all unbelievers, never took them to church. They don't go to church either. Suddenly, all these kids were coming every Sunday, and they're hearing about the gospel, right? Well, there was a problem. What was the problem? Well, some people in the church didn't like that. Why? Because many of those kids wore hats in church. I know what you're thinking. Oh, the humanity, right? Can you imagine hats in church? So you had all these unchurched kids finally hearing about the gospel. They were violating a made-up rule that people came up with that you can't find in the Bible if you read it backwards and turned it sideways. That may be a silly example, but it proves the point. We all have our own set of rules that we've maybe inherited or come up with for the way to do church or the way people should dress or act or what kind of programs or activities should be done. But none of that is in the Bible. How many times have churches fought and spent hours debating things that are found nowhere in Scripture and how many people were dying outside of their walls without the gospel? Well, they fought about silly things. Listen, the kingdom is more than religious rules. There are people who wore their Sunday best every Sunday. Went to Sunday school. Had Awana badges looking like General Patton, right? Prayed before their meals. They went to all the business meetings. They served on committees. Never wore a ball cap in church and are in hell. Because the kingdom isn't about whether or not we could keep a bunch of rules. It's about whether or not we have had our bonds loosed by this conquering Christ. And if we have, then we are free indeed. Free to do what? Free to serve him with reckless abandon, which means being obedient to what he says, not to things we made up or are used to or like. It means we can change our perspective and not make church about us, but about others. It means we could change our perspective and go out and seek those that society does not esteem and welcome them in without pretense or worried that they'll fit our expectations when Jesus never required such things. A religion that is so dull that it needs a bunch of man-made rules and regulations is not one in which people will rejoice, is it? The woman who was healed rejoiced because she realized her bonds were loose, both of her physical infirmities as well as her spiritual bonds. And look at verse 17. The people in verse 17 rejoice for the same reason, but not all of them. Jesus divides. Look, Look what verse 17 says. As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. All. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. There is a great division present, isn't there? Two groups were forming with none left in the middle. Words and actions like what Jesus gives in 10 through 17 allow for no neutrality. No fence sitting is possible. Jesus' actions do what they always do, which is force a choice. Daryl Bach says the question remains, with which part of the crowd does the reader identify? The complainers or those who praise God? This is why it's so important to realize our helpless state apart from a move of God. This is why I so often 
remind you that your bank account and your family heritage and your standing in the community and your religious deeds and record, your job, your reputation, where you live and so on, it won't save you. You need to know that because you try to trust in those things as I do. They never have and they never will. And as long as you think they do, you'll be with the complainers and not the rejoicers. Why? Because if your view of the kingdom is that only people who can earn their way in are allowed, and those earners happen to be like you and people like you, you'll never rejoice when the riffraff comes in. You'll not only never rejoice, but you'll do your best to avoid any contact with them, or you'll see them as bigger sinners than you, or less deserving of the gospel than you, or less deserving of a seat in a church than you. And you'll think you should have a louder voice and more influence. And when things don't go your, the way they, you think they should, you'll grumble and you'll miss out on what God is doing through ordinary means of grace. So who are you with? Are you with the complainers or the people who praise God? It has to be one or the other. Kingdom is surprising, isn't it? Well, that's not all. Jesus follows his healing with two quick parables in 18 through 21. Twice he asks, what is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? This brings us to point number five. The kingdom works through the small and the insignificant. The kingdom works through the small and the insignificant. Jesus compares the kingdom to a mustard seed, right? Which is the smallest of all the seeds that people in first century Palestine would plant, okay? But even though it was small, it would grow to be a tree that could reach over 10 feet in height, and the birds of the air could make nests in it and find shelter and comfort. So Jesus is saying something that begins small can become something great over time, right? That's pretty straightforward. In fact, it could become a place of shade and shelter. That's what he said. Now, this isn't what the people wanted to hear. Now, we talked about Palm Sunday. The people wanted the magnificent arrival of a grand kingdom, and they wanted it now. They didn't want to start small, and they didn't want to have to wait. But Jesus is saying that the kingdom comes now in his person, but it starts small and unassuming. It starts in a feeding trough, in small, unregarded town. It starts with 12 disciples, but they weren't from Ivy League schools, were they? Or the royal palaces. They were ragamuffins, whose trades were fishermen and tax collector and zealot. It starts with a Roman cross at the place of the skull between criminals. It starts with an empty tomb, and it continues now. But how does it do that? Why are we drawn to big and impressive things? I, you know, I wonder when I read this, if someone in the crowd in verse 19 wasn't thinking, why didn't he say the kingdom is like a cedar tree? But it starts as a seed too. But it grows to like these mammoth proportions. Wouldn't that be better? But that's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus knew what he was doing when he picked the mustard seed. Not only is it small, but it's contemptible. He says the kingdom's like that, you know. We should like that, I think. Do you like that? Do you like that Jesus uses the small and unimpressive and contemptible? Do you like that? I think we should want that. If we don't want that, maybe it's because we're still trying to hold on to some semblance of impressiveness and importance. We need to let go of that and embrace the kingdom of the mustard seed. We should like that. It's a mustard seed, shouldn't we? Where do we live again? 
And we don't live in New York or London or Los Angeles or Chicago or Seattle or even Atlanta, do we? We're in Cordial, Georgia. Who's ever heard of Cordial? You know, five years ago when my phone rang and the caller ID said, Cordial, Georgia, I said out loud as I ignored it, where's Cordell, Georgia? Right, I had to Google it. You know, I'll go to these denominational conferences and I have that lanyard, you know, that says First Baptist Church of Cordell. And people from Georgia ask me, where's Cordell? And I say, why, it's the watermelon capital of the world. And they look at me funny. And I say, you've never heard of the gateway to South Georgia before? And they look at me funny. And I say, we have a weird rocket by an exit. And they're like, oh. <laughs> now, <laughs> we love Cordial, right? You might be just a little offended. How dare you? That's where I'm from, right? But if you're offended, maybe that's because you're missing what Jesus is saying here. If we get what Jesus is saying, we shouldn't want to be big and impressive and important because that's the opposite of the kingdom. Jesus uses the most unlikely of people from the most unlikely of places in the most unlikely of ways to reach people for the kingdom, which influences their eternity. Jesus uses people and places and ways no one would ever expect in a million years to turn the world upside down. Jesus uses all kinds of people in all kinds of ways to be kingdom people that provide shade and comfort to those no one else has time for. Couldn't that be the first Baptist church in Cordial, Georgia? Who would have guessed? Jesus would. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which grows large, it is present, even if hidden, unnoticed, or ignored, but its full revelation will come. You just you have to wait. But until then, keep going and keep sowing and keep plowing and keep following. Do you see? And this leads us to our final point. Point number six, the kingdom permeates and works slowly. Jesus says the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in a flower until all was leaven. This is another accessible picture to Jesus' audience, right? They would know this picture. Jesus says the kingdom will eventually permeate everything. That's what he's saying. It works slowly, though even imperceptive to the naked eye. Now, two quick lessons quickly that we'll fire off. First, we realize that if we are kingdom citizens, and we've given our allegiance to Jesus, and he's come into our hearts and given us the indwelling spirit, that his kingdom that is working in our hearts and souls and minds should eventually touch everything. In other words, Jesus' kingdom ethic will influence everything we do. This is Christian growth, isn't it? The more and more the kingdom works through the word and prayer and preaching and community, and the more we'll see all things with a kingdom perspective. We'll change our perspective. Second, we must be patient. We must be patient and realize the kingdom works slowly. We are, by all accounts, impatient people. Isn't that true? We've been conditioned to have a short attention span. And, you know, it was found in 2015 that we now, 2015, we now have the attention span shorter than a goldfish. That's true. Look it up. We've been conditioned to have short attention spans. We want things delivered instantly. We are instant gratification people, aren't we? We want what we want, and we want it now. It's like that old J.G. Wentworth commercial. Remember that thing when you skip school? We want it now. It's my money, and I need it now. We don't want to wait in line at the store. 
We don't want to wait in the drive-thru. We don't want to wait for our Amazon orders. And we want to see instant results when we do anything in our lives. We don't want to wait. Not only do we want the big and the flashy, we, we also want immediate payoffs. That's not how the kingdom works, though. That's not how growth in Christ works, though. That's not how meaningful growth in the church works, though. See, you may be someone who is frustrated. Have you ever been like this? With the rate at which you are growing in Christ. Maybe you think you should be further along by now. Maybe you're angry that you're, there are still sins you can't shake. Maybe you can't believe you still have a short fuse or, or you still can't help but to gossip and talk about other people. Maybe you just wish you were further down the road at this point in your life. This should give us heart, right? Take heart. And the leaven of the kingdom might be working slowly for you, but if you continue to tap into the means of, the, of grace of God through the word and prayer and sacrament and accountability, community and sitting under a word like you're doing now, and you continue to strive, there's growth happening. Maybe it's slow, maybe it's imperceptible, but it's happening. Be patient, my friend, and continue to slog. We need to be patient as a church as well, don't we? See, I know pragmatism, which is what works, and attractionalism, which is what do people like, is a strong temptation for how to do church. Why? Because when you do things that are designed to get people in the door so that they will be consumers and spectators for religious goods and services, people will show up and you'll grow a church numerically. You really will. It's not that hard. But you'll be growing it wide and not deep. So I get the impulse for quick fixes and attractive programs, but what if the New Testament's idea of how to grow a church both spiritually and numerically is through plain old ordinary means of grace? What if it's meant to be slow? and steady? What if the kingdom work is something every member undertakes? What if we are all the ones who go and reach the marginalized in our spheres of influence? What if we focus on making disciples rather than consumers? And what if it all takes time? Isn't that how the kingdom of God works? Isn't that what Jesus says? Let me read you this quote from Eugene Peterson from his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and then we'll land this thing, all right? Eugene Peterson said, one aspect of the world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes to on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. That's what we fight against. Jesus says the kingdom and its growth is like a tree that comes from a seed, but it grows slowly. Like leaven that spreads through the dough methodically over time until the whole thing is permeated with the kingdom. He says it moves slowly. You may not, you may not notice that it's moving, but it's moving. What must we do? 
continue to knead the dough and it will spread and it will permeate everything and it will be unstoppable. See, Jesus is confronting us as he always does with a choice. Are we in the kingdom or aren't we? Do we embrace the kingdom way or don't we? Are we following him or not? There's no half measures. There's no neutrality. Have we seen ourselves as helpless sinners who need to be loosed from our bonds and turned to him and accepted his offer of rescue by bowing, his, bowing our knee to him, or haven't we? Do we strive to obey him, realizing that growth in him may be slow and difficult, but we still strive, depending on his strength, his power, his goodness, and not our own? The word will do its work. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what is on your heart or mind today, we all need a change of perspective to see how Jesus sees, to prize what Jesus prizes, to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes, to see people how Jesus sees people, and to love how Jesus loves. Only he could change our perspective. Let's all go to him today and ask him to do his work.